Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Bitches on Comics. I'm Sarah Sentry. The most recent TV show that I watched was the end of Winona Earp. Oh my God. The tears. The tears. And you can't really talk about it because at the time of recording, it's still pretty like fresh. So it's spoilery and I haven't seen it yet. Mm, I will say some gay stuff happening. Mm, I do like to hear that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, hi folks. It's Essie Flynn or your other host. I recently watched Bob's Burgers because it's my favorite TV show to have ever existed. I watch it literally every day, but episodes are currently coming out, which has been so fun. I actually think season 11 is really good. And I know people are like, you know, TV shows should end. And I'm like, I agree, unless it's Bob's Burgers. (laughs) I need this show to never end. And I get why people felt that way about The Simpsons. I disagree. I think it has some, you know, stuff that is like, you can go now. But Bob's Burgers is pretty fucking pure. You know, I love Louise so much. I think she's like such a little, you know, firecracker and a jerk. and But then also very compassionate. That's great. Bob is highly relatable. I just love the whole thing. Love the whole fam. Love the whole show. have a question from Veronique Emma Hubois, who sent this to us via DM on Twitter. She says, listening to your bit about tension between lesbians and bi slash pan queer women with regard to male attraction. And it made me think that I don't remember if y'all have done an episode specifically on the comic or movie version of Blue is the Warmest Color yet. And then we talked a little bit about like, what's the question? And then it was like, I don't know. It's something about how there's such a fraught and complex set of issues going on between the comic and the film and the current politics of representation. Emma, you are the best. Thank you so much for this question. Listeners, you may remember Emma from episode 32, All These Reflective Surfaces, and episode 47, That Will Be In Politic, which we will come back to, especially episode 47 as we're talking, because there's a lot, there's a lot going on in this comic and the film, which we will also discuss. But yes, Emma, you're the best. Thank you so much. This is a great question. And no, we haven't had a chance to talk about Blue is the Warmest Color. And I think partially because of the fraught representation, it's not like a super clean convo. But 
I'd love to start. Sarah, when did you first read Blue is the Warmest Color? It was right before the movie was released. So I think it would have been maybe like 2012 or something like that. The comic came out in 2010. The movie came out in 2013. So there was kind of a quick turnaround. I remember that it had won some maybe graphic literature awards. And um, yeah, I just picked it up. I had read it back then. Yeah, I picked it up maybe a year or two after the film came out. It was during that like deep dive I did where I was like, I'm going to learn what comics are. And I read like 100 comics in a year or like comics and graphic novels. And I made my own little like, what are you, like little syllabus. I was like, this is my reading syllabus. And Blue is the Warmest of Color was on one of those, you know, best graphic novel lists. And I read it and I genuinely love the comic. I think there are you know, we'll, we'll get into like the layers of, of representation and what's going on, but I've read it twice leading up to this recording because I really wanted to be fresh on it since originally reading it. And I, I still love it. I still think that it is really beautiful. I think that the author has uh, since changed their name and pronouns since the time of the book coming out. So Jewel Moreau, and they use they, them pronouns. And Jewel is a really exceptional artist. Like, the art in here is, it destroys me. Like, the facial expressions, the way that Emma and Clementine and, and the secondary characters all, like, interact with and, like, look at each other. It's, it's so intimate and beautiful, you know, not even getting to the actual, like, sexual intimacy that also takes place on the page. I love it. Um, what was your reaction when you first read it, Sarah? I think it's really good. It's somebody who wrote a comic and drew it between the ages of 19 and 24. And there are times that you will know that because it is highly, highly dramatic. But it's dramatic in a way that I think that almost any queer person should be able to relate to because it's such a story of coming into your queerness despite everything, right? Because there's a ton of homophobia in this story. A ton, yeah. Yeah, like a lot, a lot, a lot. And I think that that's a thing because, I mean, I feel like people want to not know about homophobia now, right? Like people mm -hmm. kind of are just like, but I had that like, you remember, you know, get marriage happened and like there was that like rainbow filter that I had oh, on we my could, Facebook. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. oh my so I think it's all done, you know, and it like really bums people out to be like, no, I got, like, thrown down by a dude one time. Like, mm -hmm. people have been violent to me because I am a queer person. Like, mm -hmm. that has happened many times, and I will spare you the details to it because most of the time I don't really want to talk about it, and I don't want to put it on people because I know how hard it is, right? Like, it's hard, especially even if you're talking with other queer people because a lot of us have those experiences. And there's that vicarious trauma piece, and so you're trying to both, like, respect your own need. I mean, I'm projecting, so tell me if I'm right. This is how I feel like about my experiences with like homophobia, biphobia, and transphobia is like I try to, you know, heal myself because I'm going to be responsible. There's no closure going to come from the people who have hurt me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they don't give a fuck. Uh, but then also it's like I don't want to then hurt other people as I'm healing myself. You know, like because I think a lot of queer and trans people have experiences of terrifying homophobia and transphobia and, and you know, biphobia, queerphobia, uh, queer antagonism, if you will. It's hard to talk about. And I never want to stumble into like a wound of mine that breaks open a wound of someone else. Sure. I don't know if that's part of what you're talking about too, but that's part of the responsibility, I feel. In a way, yeah. 
Well, when you're talking about how we talk to other queer people, but then it's like, I think too that this is an important comic because now a lot of narratives are, I want to be telling my stories. I don't just want to talk about what's sad and what's difficult. But there was a time where even just doing a story about what is sad and what's difficult from the person's perspective is a unique thing, right? Yes. And also even in like 2010, like this was a rare comic. Mm -hmm. I don't think people always understand how many more queer comics there are now because for a long time, so many people were just closeted, you know? Or, I mean, all of the same problems that a lot of people have had in comics. Like, it wasn't a very accepting place all of the time. Well, and then you add the layers of publishing, and publishing has been very antagonistic towards trans and queer narratives. And so there's, like, so many layers there of this is— I think something you and I have talked about a lot when we've talked about this book off mic is like, it is really important for the time it came out. And I find something that clicked for me, Sarah, as you were talking is like, knowing the artist is between 19 and 23 as, as they are making this, it really rings like that time in my life as a queer person. Like when really? I was that age trying to figure out what this attraction to uh, to someone who was assigned the same gender at birth as I was, like what that meant, who that made me, and the horrible things we said and did to each other, you know? Right. Like, the, the bad shit that like comes from internalizing homophobia and biphobia, right? <laughs> That's like, it. Like these are characters. It's hard for Clementine to see a reality where her story could end in happiness, right? Like, at this point. So I would say that we do find our ways out of that time period, right? But it is a painful time, even if you have it all squared away, even if you came out when you were 15 or whatever, you know? It's like, it still is a hard time. I was dating a girl when I was 15, and then I came out as lesbian when I was, like, 25. So there was, like, 10 years of me still being, like, I'm still trying kind of to fit into mm-hmm. what people's image of me is supposed to be. And I have these problems as like a pretty cis girl. I know that like there's just so much bullshit in this world, right? And like that it affects people differently. Whenever I talk about this story, I want to always remember that I am listening to somebody else's story, right? Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't have to be something that completely is like what 38-year-old me identifies with because I also Mm. don't think I would currently identify with a lot of the things that I would have created whenever I was 22, you know. Hell Um, yes. Because we're in a different place. Like, it's just, I mean, that's how it is. I've had, like, much longer to go into a different stage of my life. And from what I can tell, so has Jewel. So I think that that means that this is a very important story. And it's a beautiful story. And it is a comic that I think is well worth reading. Because Mm. if you can put yourself in a place where you were observing and thinking about, like, why somebody felt a need to tell this story, the environment in which the story was really least and also just how rare it was in its day I mean I think that all of those are things that are like it has as we'll talk very soon a very different connotation for a lot of queer people but in its original form this really is an important queer work yeah and I and I think you you also hinted at something we talked about again off mic which is knowing that the author has since transitioned and identifies as trans mask and is non-binary and looked like a snack before, looks like a snack now. Very happy for them. Uh, I'm sorry, I looked at their Instagram, and I I just call it like I see it, people. Uh, They, you know, there's a transness to this narrative that 
I certainly missed not understanding necessarily. There were things I felt that were like true for me around the real discomfort around one's body. How does it feel to connect with another human sexually when when you are in this weird place with your body or or not even weird, but just like, uh, you know, transitional, you know, I guess is the best way to put it. Very trans phase with your body. Mm -hmm. And, And I think that brings out some really beautiful things about the power of like, trans queerness and and trans lesbians trans bi people and how that that adds another layer to you know what again what we'll get to in a little bit when we talk about the tensions between like lesbian and and bi and pan women i was nervous when you asked the question emma because i was like i haven't reread it since i read it and i loved it and what if i don't love it and i you know sarah you and i talked about this as there's a bit of like the tragic queer women trope and there is like a, a sad and and quite tragic death and you know I, I remember feeling like a little bit like oh you know maybe maybe that isn't for me and then I was like oh this is created by a queer person who is talking about their experiences like hell yeah I want this who cares what I would have done in this place it doesn't matter I also get to benefit from living in a world where, where Jewel Moreau has published this book. So it's easy to say what I would do, you know, or what I prefer. But when I look at it, there's so much truth in here. I mean, there's this point where Emma, like, is kissing Clementine and is like, uh, you're going to make some guy really happy one day. And, and it just, it shatters Clementine because Clementine's like, why are you saying this to me? Like, yeah. why why are you trying to drive me away? And trying to force like this heteronormative, you know, future onto me. Right. Which, yeah, I think is important to note because I would say that even just saying that then later becoming absolutely infuriated and breaking off the entire relationship because Clementine has a very brief affair with a guy that literally like the whole thing is about every person that she interacts with trying to make her conform to heteronormativity. Like, it is so oppressive. I just see somebody who, every time in the comic that she's with a guy, it seems really painful for her. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's it was painful for me, too, even though, like, they were probably totally nice guys. Um, Not all of them, but, like, I'm sure that (laughs) some of them were. I didn't barely date guys that much. But when I did, it's like, I look back on that stuff and I'm just like, what were you doing? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I dated a girl who literally said that to me. It was just like, one day you're going to make some guy very happy. Like, this is all yeah. pretty true stuff, honestly. And Exactly. I was going to say the same thing, Sarah, but please continue. Well, it's just a part of our time that was messy that we don't like to think about, right? Yes. So. Yes. Well, it might. the first person I was ever serious with was a, a, a bi woman and I was by and we would say horrible shit like that to each other all the time. Like one day you're going to be straight and married to a man and you, what we have won't mean anything. Like what the fuck? Talk about internalized by phobia. We were just yelling and, and we weren't even yelling, frankly, but we were just barfing this, this toxicity we had ingested at each other. And it was awful. And it, I mean, it brings me to tears thinking about that time and thinking about how awful we were to one another. And, and I think that there's a lot of nuance is what I'll say for me when I think about how compulsory heterosexuality relates to my bisexuality. And if you don't know what comp het is, it's the idea that 
everyone on this planet, predominantly in white societies is what I should speak about, and, and societies that have been colonized by white societies, there is a belief that if you are one of the binary genders, which are the only genders that exist, it is your job to be attracted to the person of the other gender. That's compulsory. That's what's given. And so there are some really, I think, beautiful conversations and hard and fraught conversations that are happening and have been happening for a long time around to what degree are many bi women or could bi women or could bi people be conditioned into seeing themselves as such because of compulsory heterosexuality. Which can be true because that did happen to me, right? But like, Absolutely. The next step to that is always, and then bi people don't exist. <laughs> it's exactly. like, okay, but stop. Stop right there, yes. like because that was yes. that was the thing. <laughs> like, well, and that and that's what I was gonna say is I think my experience as a bi person was where compulsory heterosexuality, the way it impacted me, is that when I realized that I cared and wanted to have sex with and be close to women, I reacted to that by having sexual encounters with men that made me feel terrible, and I felt disgusted. And there's this moment where you see. Clementine get up from, you know, the bed with her high school boyfriend who's trying to have sex with her. And she's like, I just can't do this. I can't do this. And I've been that person in a room with a man and been like, I just, I can't do this. I can't do this. And he's being really kind and it doesn't matter. I do. I do like, I like that he's kind, but you're right. It means nothing because she has already backed herself into this situation. They have backed together, backed her into this situation where it's like, this is bad for me. The way I make sense of that as a bi person is that because I was trying to stifle my queerness through performing heterosexuality, I was dealing with compulsory heterosexuality. I do not believe compulsory heterosexuality is why I'm bi. I am attracted to lots of different people, predominantly queer and trans people, who have all kinds of different bodies. I love penises. I love vulvas. I love intersex people. I love it all. I'm like, yay, this is so fun. But I couldn't get to that place through heterosexuality heterosexuality and compulsory heterosexuality wanted me to stifle my queerness, which took away all my power and all of my ability to understand what was happening inside of me. And so I think in the, in the case of Blue is the Warmest Color for Clementine, I think it almost doesn't matter what her, her sexual identity is. I think, you know, Sarah and I are big believers in like, you can be a bisexual lesbian, like you, whatever labels, yeah. like and, and intersections of labels that describe what's best for someone to understand themselves. Like, I love that. That's beautiful. So to me, it almost doesn't matter what label she would choose for herself because what she lives out is this, this tension with compulsory heterosexuality. And frankly, what kills her, spoiler alert, the books is from 2010. I'm not going to feel bad about spoilers, is literally the homophobia she lives with and has to self-medicate herself through. I think it's easy to be like, oh, she cheated on her partner and so that led to her death. And I'm like, mm. that's that's a reading. I'm not going to say that's not a fair reading. But I think the reading I have, and, and Sarah, I'm curious if this is similar to yours, is that what killed her was her family fucking throwing her on the street because she was gay and a child. What and her killed girlfriend. her was her girlfriend throwing her on the street. What killed her is like she could self-medicate with prescription meds to keep herself able to like literally shuffle through her life like a fucking zombie and no one saw that you know like valentin her her very close friend he sees the the problem and he tries to help her but it's like it's too little too late i think there's this way that we see 
how straight people tell stories about queer people, right? Like how barrier gaze is a real thing, how the dead lesbian syndrome is like the thing. Like you come out, you have queer sex, you die. That's the fucking trajectory of queer people throughout fiction, really since the Victorian era in particular. But when we take that kind of reading and we put it onto queer creators, we do a disservice. I don't think Jewel Moreau is trying to tell a story about how like being queer and having queer sex is why she dies. I don't think Jewel Moreau is trying to tell a story where like because she she cheats on her uh, female partner with a dude, she's a monster. I think what Jewel Moreau is trying to tell is a story of like imperfect people grappling with what they want to be in the world and how they are and how they're treated. And you you read Clementine say these things like, I'm disgusting. What I think is disgusting. I'm a monster. And she has some voices like Valentin's, like Emma's, who are saying, you're not disgusting. You're beautiful. Who you are is allowed to be here. But even those voices get sick of her at some point. And they, they're, you know, cruel to her in different moments. So I, I just think there's a lot of nuance going on here that if it was written by a different author who maybe was straight or cishet or, or you know, wasn't grappling with so many complex ideas, it'd be a completely different book. And so that's like my long rant way of saying, like, I fucking love this goddamn fucking book because there's so much truth and pain in it that feels so, it takes so many awful experiences I've had as a queer person in straight community and as a queer person in queer community where we have done so much harm to each other, so much putting cis-normativity, so much putting compulsory heterosexuality, uh, putting biphobia onto each other. We are responsible for that work. And that's here in these pages. And it's messy. It's so messy. People make mistakes. And they're young. And they're queer. And they're fucking up. And I guess that all feels very true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that when people read this comic and they talk about like it being, you know, in quotations problematic, I just find it to be kind of an interesting way to view it, I guess, because it's such a flattening of a lot of the things. It's like, yes, she is kissing her girlfriend that she broke up with when it happens, right? Like she goes into like, I believe, just like cardiac arrest, essentially. But it's from her addiction. But then people will be like, oh, so she like literally dies of lesbian sex. And I'm just like, okay, sure. But that's not what kills her. And it is homophobia. So it's really weird to put that on the lesbian part of it, right? Because it is definitely because of homophobia. And it's because this is a character that had multiple people throw her out onto the sidewalk, <laughs> like literally and physically. I feel like people watch something like that happen in a book and then they're like, well, and that character had to go call a friend or figure out what else to do. And they just don't understand what it feels like to be thrown out onto the goddamn sidewalk. So like yes, to not have yes. anywhere to go. And like the fact that that happened multiple times because of essentially homophobia, because even whenever Emma gets so upset with Clementine about it, right? Even that in and of itself, the way that like she has always talked to Clementine has been a little bit biphobic because that's another thing too, right? Is like the lesbian being so hurt by like a woman cheating with a man or something like that. And it's like, well, you should be mostly upset that they cheated is <laughs> like the thing, right? I understand why, right? Like, I mean, this is somebody who like her close friend is a really great friend, but it's hard to see what she's living for in this comic. There's a lot of really bad things going on. 
And so I get it. And I just think that by trying to put it on like, oh, well, it's communicated because she like cheated on her girlfriend because she had sex with her girlfriend, you know, like something like that is like why the bad things happen. I'm like, okay. I mean, I guess we read different books, but because like, <laughs> like it's from the beginning, very obvious that like the enemy of this book is homophobia, right? Like, yes, yes. And I think what's also hard for, uh, you know, people based in the U.S. reading this book is it also deals with intricacies of French culture and French politics around queerness that are different than American you know, because we're different places. It's a very nuanced piece. And I, I'm with you, Sarah. Like, I think so many people try to flatten it. And I, I think it's a huge disservice to the art, to the piece as a whole, and, and to the creator. Because it is deeply nuanced. And again, like, I, I love it. I think it's something really special. And yeah, it bums me out. I'm not going to read it every day. And I'm not going to read it, you know, when I want to feel good. But I will return to it probably for the rest of my life because of the... It reminded me of things that I have willfully forgotten Mm -hmm. about being young and messy and bi and in a relationship with a a woman and and hurting each other, like hurting each other so much because all we had was this total immaturity, (laughs) a shit ton of internalized biphobia and homophobia (laughs) and transphobia and just like drinking too much and saying mean things to each other and then being like, but I love you and I love her and we're in love and being like, maybe we had some growing to do. And that's the other thing I think when I read about these babies who like, I mean, Clementine's in secondary school and I think Emma's like in art school, so she's a bit older, but they're still really, I mean, they're under 23. Yeah. I think Max would be their age. And it's just like, Of course they're messy. Of course they're terrible. Of course they say mean things to each other. It's not their fault. They didn't create this fucked up society. They're just doing the best they can. And it turns out when you're young, the best you can do is is all you can do. Actually, it's not when you're young. It's whenever you're alive. The best you can do is all you can do. And sometimes the best we can do is piss poor. It's like, all right, that's okay. Like, Right. And then there will be people who are like, oh, but there's like the age difference and that's problematic. And it's just like, none of us are going to go date a teenager because we read this comic. Like, I don't think that that's the lesson (laughs) to take from it. And it's like totally just like 100%. But you do understand that like teenagers sometimes do date older people and that there's a messed up power dynamic behind that. Like sometimes, right? Like you get that, that it does actually occur. And that's like why we talk about it. And that when that happens in here it is only just one part of the power dynamic in their relationship that is complicated, right? Like, Yeah, I don't think Jewel Moreau is like, please take this book as a blueprint to live your life. At all. (laughs) But like, yeah, it's 100% expression. And then also for a lot of like young people, like literally you just, you will end up dating like an older person, right? Like when you're probably too young to date that person. And there's a lot of complicated stories about that. It's like, once again, it's not telling you to do it. <laughs> like, it, yeah. it's totally being like, that's part of what hurts. Like, yes, yes. Her well, being totally. able to just shrug it off and go on to the next thing while like Clementine is like, this is like my first love. It's so one sided. She all even says encompassing that. love. Yes. I don't, you don't think about me like I do you. Oh, it's so heartbreaking. It's all part of the power dynamic. So to me, I'm just like, yeah, that is problematic. Thank you. That's the <laughs> point. <laughs> I well, think speaking of problematic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> they made a movie about this and uh, kind of about this, I guess. Yeah, there's some, there's some layover. 
It's a three-hour film that is so offensive. I hate it. I didn't finish watching it. I watched it for this question, and I got halfway, and the first sex scene happened, and I found it so upsetting. And I remember looking at my partner and being like, is it just me or is this horrifying? Like, am I being weird or is this like the most awful thing? And they were like, this is terrible. This is horrifying. And so we stopped and we're like, okay, well, we'll finish the movie later. And then I just never got to it. And then my my rental expired. And I was like, well, fuck that. I'm not going to pay for it again. <laughs> so right. I have not seen the second half. There is a six minute uh, sex scene. There are a bunch of articles out there. It's about seven minutes. It's split into two. So is right, it okay? Like, I think it's like seven and a half minutes in the whole movie. So Ugh. yeah, I think one is six and one is like the minute and a half. I think is what I. But again, it's been. I didn't watch the whole thing. I, I've I mean, it feels it. extremely long. Like it's a long sex scene. Yeah, regardless. Yeah, exactly. And the filmmaking, the work around it was really terrible. The two actors who were in the sex scene, it took them 10 days to fill it. And they felt very taken advantage of. They felt like they weren't safe. Somebody made her as a very young person with another very young person shoot an incredibly long mini day sex scene that honestly comes across really uncomfortably. And the fact that so many people, I think, embraced that sex scene had something to do of like, well, we have to because like it's two lesbians and like all of that. And I'm just like, this is like one of the least lesbian movies I've ever seen. Like the male gaze is like all over that movie. Yes, Whenever you thank first you. see her, it's like her ass. And I'm just like, isn't this girl supposed to be like 15? In the comic, there's like maybe two pages of sex scene, like maybe three if you like combine some like random panels or something like that. But the that. dynamic like, is so different, you know? And in the this, dynamic's very different, yeah. In the film, there's like this way that Emma is is very, I think, predatory towards, they, they change Clementine's name to Adele because the actor's name, I think, is Adele. Which is so Adele. weird even in and of itself, but yeah. It's like, what are you doing? Like, they're acting. Let them do their jobs. And And the actor was 19 who played... Uh, Adele, Adele was 19 and, and um, Leah, who played Emma, was 29. And people were like, was this even simulated? It looks like they were having sex. And they were like these, these, we were contorting into these positions that were, they hurt our bodies. They weren't good for us. It felt like we were, uh, what Sarah said is what I read between the lines, which is like, it felt like performing for like a, a man's pleasure. And, you know, you read the comic and it's like the first time they have sex Emma is like, wait, no, don't go down on me. Like, you've never done this before. Like, let's just go slower. And that's like what my experiences were like. Like, like it wasn't like, you know, studio shoot. <laughs> like, you're doing things that, you know, to borrow from, from Kate McKinnon. Like, I'm not sure that move was even invented yet. You know, like, it's just so I don't know if wild. it's still invented yet. Like, there's <laughs> stuff that I see in there where I'm like, I don't know, y'all. Like, I just don't know what you're even trying to do. I'm like, this yeah, is like, good for you. Tell me what that's, but what it wasn't. stimulating that's the thing. here. It was terrible. It was, and since then, the, the director has been accused of sexual assault. The two actors are like, we would never work with him again. It's a fucking a huge nightmare. Mess. So, like, also, I want to talk just a little bit about the fact that when we talk about the kind of tensions between lesbian, bisexual, or, like, it would almost extend to, I think, to gay man and bisexual and how there is kind of, you know, some gay people, like, won't date a bisexual person and, like, all of that kind of stuff that 
we all hate. Um, but like, you know, it just is kind of obviously a pretty weird, closed-minded way to look at things, like not thinking bisexuality exists or is real. I feel like the depictions of what the relationships with men are are so different in the comic as opposed to the movie. You wouldn't have made it this far, but there's a scene at Emma's art opening where a guy just starts talking about male gaze, like randomly in the middle of the movie and is like, I would choose this because I am a man and I can't see things as not a man and like all of this. And it was just like, why is this in the middle of this movie about lesbians? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. And or bisexual. I mean, it's like, I don't know. I don't know how there are a lot of the men taking version. up a lot of space in the film version. And it's like, oh, I wonder why. <laughs> the end is is that they do break up, but then there's at the very last scene, there's like a weird like flirtation moment with a dude that uh, Adele has. And it's just like that's kind of the note that they go out on. So that's that's automatically completely weird and different and like just does a completely different thing. So once again, all right. So I want to say something too about how this movie has no homophobia in it because I think that that's very important because we just talked a bunch about why it is important for there to be you know, queer people who can express and talk about homophobia and, like, things that have been difficult. And that was a huge part of, like, what we were talking about when we were talking about the comic just a second ago. So what the director says in an interview is, each of my heroines is defined by her social class, the difficulties they have with their relationship that causes them to break up and ultimately what the film is about is their class differences since it generates a difference in their personal aspirations. It's not at all about homosexuality, which would be more or less tolerated or understood by the world around them. So Adele is a school teacher in this. (laughs) Um, So the idea that Adele's sexuality doesn't come into play in her job is wild. And the fact that somebody would say that they didn't have anything militant to say about homosexuality and therefore they didn't feel like it was important to talk about homophobia in a book that was, or in an adaptation of a book that was almost explicitly about homophobia. And also that it was like a hyper-sexualized like take on this relationship kind of, all of those things. It's like, that's the homophobia. You're doing the homophobia. You're the homophobia one. <laughs> like there's tons of homophobia in this film. It's you. <laughs> Yeah, 100%. Uh, And there is homophobia. There's one point where Adele gets harassed by her classmates, and he made them film this shoot so many times. The girl accidentally punched her in the face and actually split Adele's lip while filming. It's, like, awful. Because he would reshoot every scene for so long that it was— And would scream at them and, like, all of So abusive. It was awful. So I just wanted to add that, like, there is homophobia, but he can't see it because the only kind of homophobia he sees is the kind he's doing and doesn't see as homophobia. Right. And saying also, once again, that, like, a school teacher wouldn't have to deal with homophobia is just, like, the most wild thing Are I've you ever fucking heard. kidding me? Yeah, considering. Like, please think My about My partner once said I was bisexual in the class and got several calls from parents who were like, that's disgusting. Why would you even talk about that? Yeah. And, like, got reprimanded by their leadership. Yeah. So, yeah, what were they supposed to be able to be safe to transition in their, their workplace? Like, no. Like, teaching is, ho- like, such a cis-heteronormative 
fucking industry. It's and awful. parents are wild about that stuff. Oh my and god! It's just like wild. we still. It's like we still literally do not want gay people around our children. And like yeah. just because it's not currently the children's hour does not mean that we do not still see the effects of that in the teaching field or that Thank people you. don't lose yes. their jobs yes. over it. And so I just think that that is like truly one of the most wild things to say. Anyway, once again, support teachers. They are wonderful people. Unless they're not, but like, you know, a lot of teachers really are underappreciated for the work that they do. I agree. And, you know, and I think the other thing that pisses me off about that quote, and I'm so glad you read it for our listeners, is that in the book, the thing that divides them is the way they view their queerness. It's, it's, yes, class has some aspect to play to that. Class is a piece of what's at play here. But guess what? Adele loses all her class privilege like many LGBTQ youth do when she's cast out of her fucking home for mm-hmm. being queer. Like, that is about class, you asshole. Yeah, no, it's not just only you that's affected by class, right? Like, <laughs> that's like such a leftist thing to do is to be like, everything is class war. And it's just like, cool, there's a lot of other problems. You really need to focus on those and then you would understand. <laughs> but the fact that you always just want to go back to the one thing that affects explicitly you shows yes. that you don't see how this is a web of oppression. Like, yes. but you know what? Great. Yeah. Great. <laughs> like, I'm so glad you've got your black and white solution and don't see how that is also a problem. Congrats. Glad you made one of the most critically acclaimed lesbian movies of all time. Oh my yes. God. Well, and that's part of the thing. Part of the lead up to when the, the cheating and then the breakup in the narrative that Jewel Moreau wrote is that Clementine views her sexuality as a deeply intimate personal thing. And Emma views her sexuality as a deeply political call to arms. And that is something they fight about and struggle with the whole time. How dare he strip that away for some other narrative he thinks is more important? This is about class. It's about the the tensions we feel. I think many people who are queer and trans, who are raised in upper class and rich households, are taught that their fucking sexuality is deeply intimate and not something they have to fight for. And and frankly, I don't want people to have to fight to be respected for our sexuality and gender. We should have a world where we can fight about more nuanced and beautiful things that we want to create and make a better world. But we have to. We do have to fight for ourselves. So it's like, I get both sides of this tension. That's why the book is fucking beautiful. It's beautiful because you get where people are coming from and you hurt for them because sometimes you love someone and the things you believe about the world are irreconcilable. And that is heartbreaking. It is devastating. And it's part of the queer experience. And I'm just, I was so frustrated watching the film because I felt like of course, this is what a straight dude thinks being queer is. Of course, this is how he views it. It's all titillation and fucking. And it's like, yes, there's some titillation and fucking. Yes, there is for some of us. There's also lots of people who are ace and arrow who it's not part of their experience. And, and, and it's just, it's just like, again, like, why? Why were you in charge of this movie? You don't get the book at all. You don't get it. Very frustrating. Yeah, why? But then, of course, we know why. And then also just... <laughs> For the all the whole, above reasons. <laughs> the whole time period was so annoying and difficult because I remember just everybody being like, you have to love that movie. And I'd be like, y'all, it makes me feel like you just don't understand me because I don't think that this is good at all. Um, and that was even from the beginning because even from the beginning, like there was discussions about this, about how like the actors had been abused and how like... 
you know, whatever. But then, of course, now we have to go into the conversation real quick because we've run pretty long on this one and I want to wrap it up. But I do want to make one note, right? Which is we have to talk about how we don't be prudes because we don't like that because Mm -hmm. (laughs) there are great sex scenes in movies. I am very pro-sex scene. We have many times talked about comics that would maybe fall under like porn or something like that. I am so pro that content. And I believe so much that queer people have the right to create that content. And I think that whenever people, whenever a straight dude comes in and does really weird abusive stuff like this and puts a queer fucking title on it, then that makes it harder for us to make these movies where we are respecting people's boundaries. And that is why I want to talk about how in like, you know, movies where we do see a lot of sexuality, now it will always be considered to be too salacious. And like, People literally were calling Ammonite male gays, even though it was like a gay man and like two actors that had choreographed their own scenes. With like an intimacy coach, right? Like there yeah. were there were like actual protections. I just think people flatten conversations. And it's like the conversation about sexuality on film is also a conversation about workers' rights. Actors are workers. They have a they right are. to be safe. They have a right to be safe at work. And guess who is made the most unsafe by sex scenes at work? Huh, people from marginalized genders. Why would that be? Because they're disempowered. So it's ridiculous to pretend like we're not pro-fucking. I think we are some of the most pro-fucking people. We're like, we love a comic with some like, you know, explicit sex scenes. We love that shit. We love films like that. Ammonite is so hot and the scenes are so... I think they're wonderful because they, again, are choreographed by the people doing them so that you know what they're comfortable with. Also, what their bodies can do. These girls in fucking, I'm going to cry, in Blue is the Warmest of Color are contorting themselves into positions that hurt them. Like, what? You can't compare the two. (laughs) It really bums me out that people do. And I also think, like I said, that doing stuff like that makes it harder for us. And like whenever people start to be like, oh, well, I think that like there shouldn't be any kink at Pride or something like that. It's like, right, because every other event has no sex, right? Like, okay, great. You know, like it's just another way. And whenever you start seeing censorship, whenever you start seeing Mm -hmm. police crackdowns, whenever Mm -hmm. you see stuff like that, it's because of those calls. And I don't think that they are based in a good place because though you know, being sensitive around things. Mostly it's about increasing the protections that people who are in these industries have because then that enables them to create a better product, first of all. But then also it means that they're safe at work and that's what matters. Like that's Mm -hmm. what matters in this conversation every time is not I don't want to see sex on the screen. I want to make sure that those people are taken care of and they're safe and that they don't have to go through something like the actors. The actors who did this, I'm like, I wouldn't be surprised if you retired tomorrow because of the stuff that you went through. And like, I'm sorry. I know that they talked about this has changed how I view my profession and like what I'm willing to do. That that just breaks my heart. They were, they're, they're, they deserve protection. They're babies. Like, everybody deserves protection, A, like, at work. And B, like, that's so unacceptable. It's so frustrating. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the thing that we also wanted to make sure to do, go listen to our Patreon episode about Ammonite. I believe it's free for everyone. But if it's not, join us for as little as $2 a month, and you can get access to all of our extra content. So obviously, Ammonite, I thought was uh, spectacular. I was... I didn't see it till after a lot of the critiques came out and I was like watching it and I was like, what film were people watching? <laughs> like, 
This is right. great. This makes no sense. It's another like weird flattening conversation where I'm like, mm-hmm. I guess if you were talking about straight people, that would apply, but it really doesn't here. Yes, totally. So then we want to make sure to mention that Jewel Moreau has, since Blue's Warmest Color, come out with several comics. I will also say Jewel Moreau has gone on the record about how frustrating the adaptation is and about how it has impacted their career. So it's important to support their other work. Uh, they have Scandalon, which came out in 2013. City and Gender, which came out in 2015. Body Music came out in 2017. And then in 2020, they did the art for the DC comic, You Brought Me the Ocean. It's written by Alex Sanchez and then art by Moreau. And Moreau is also a cura- is the curator for exhibitions at the Contemporary Museum of Art in uh, Bordeaux. So we were very happy to learn that they have a, it sounds very quite robust career, and please go pick up their, their work. They deserve all the love in the world. If you haven't read Blue is the Warmest Color, I think it is so worth reading. If you haven't seen it, good for you. Good for you. Yeah, kind of wish I could unsee it. I wish I could unsee it. I cannot in good conscience ever recommend someone see that film. I am not usually so like (laughs) hard line on that, but I am. I found it so offensive. So I want to save you that uh, heartache and pain. Go straight to the comic. It is much better. Uh, Yes, it has some tragedy in it, but so does life, people. So does life. And we have many, many new queer narratives in the world, which is really great. And I, once again, we talked about Ammonite, but that is far from the only one, of course. And there is so many more queer comics. Thank God. You know, like, that's the thing. We It used to be the only, like, oh, well, there's going to be, like, two queer books this year, two queer movies tops, right? Yep. Like, there won't be many. It is, and, it is uh, it's changing. Different. Yeah, and uh, on that note... Come back next month. We are talking to all queer folks about queer projects. Predominantly, we're talking to creators about their projects. And we can share so many amazing queer graphic novels and comics that have gotten to be made. And I think many of them have some some lineage in blue as the warmest color. I think that this was a real cultural moment. And so, yeah, make sure you come back. We're doing our Pride Month extravaganza again. How many interviews will we do this year? It's a lot. So we're looking forward to it. And we are just always, you know, we're pumped. We're pumped to get to talk to creators about queer works. And again, like, I'm super grateful Jewel Moreau wrote Blues and Was the Color. And I'm all the more grateful to know that they are still making comics and art. That is truly stunning. So go check them out. They're on Instagram. They're not on Twitter, but you'll find them. And we'll put it in the show notes. Booyah. There you go. Hey there, listener. Friend. Good looking. Whatever feels right to you. (laughs) Lifelong companion. (laughs) Lava. We're so glad you're listening to our podcast. Seriously, like we are just so honored. We love to be in your ears, in your mind teaching you things, changing how you see things. This is pretty intimate. Reprogramming your dreams. Oh yeah, that happened to me. It's just for fun. Yeah, we are just like so pumped that you listen to us. Thank you so much. If you have the means, we would love to have your support over on Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash bitches on comics. 
The truth is, we run this podcast at a deficit. Sarah and I both work as freelancers, we're out here hustling, and we pay a sound engineer. We're okay with that. We're at peace. Like, we know what we're doing. But if you have the means to help us out, it would be amazing. We have so many loyal, awesome patrons right now. Thank you, every single person who supports us on Patreon. Your dollars, whether they be two or 20, they mean so much. They allow us to continue to do the podcast. And again, we're doing it at a deficit. So if you have the means, come help us out for even, I promise you, $2 a month helps. Because there's a lot of you, we know because we're watching your listening stats. <laughs> and if you can't help, it would be amazing. If you can't help, this is not a guilt thing. We love you. We think you're fantastic. Those pants you're wearing, they look great. That shirt, mm, I wish I had that shirt. I was like bold of you to assume that I'm wearing pants. But... <laughs> that robe you have on, Sarah, it looks good. Very nice silk robe. <laughs> but I need a new one. Go to Patreon. Yeah. <laughs> This thing is literally like threadbare at this point. But you know what? That's not what's important. What's important is also on Patreon, you can listen to a ton of free episodes. Patreon.com slash bitches on comics. Spell it out. Don't search it. Type it with your little fingies (laughs) because you can't find us because we like to say the F-bomb, which is fuck. Yeah, just so you know, it's fuck actually is the one. Whenever people are like, can we curse on this show? And we're just like, you have to say fuck or we kick you off of the show. We're like, motherfucker, what do you think? Yeah. They're like, excuse me, that's Don't intense. fucking come in here and fucking act like you're not going to say fuck. Like, <laughs> all of our lovely guests will be like, yeah, you know, fuck that. Oh, is it okay if I curse? <laughs> and it's like, well, you did. So, I hope so. <laughs> Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. The comic of the week is Josie and the Pussycats. Art by Audrey Mock. Story by Marguerite Bennett and Cameron Diordio. Coloring by Andre Shmanovich and Kelly Fitzpatrick. Lettering by Jake Morelli. Yay! Oh, my God. So, you know, Josie and the Pussycats, if you don't know who they are, I literally don't know what to tell you. (laughs) They're a band of adorable women. A movie? A TV show? They're from cartoons? They were in Riverdale. Mm Mm-hmm. They live in Riverdale where Archie and co. live. Let me rephrase that. They live in Riverdale where Betty and Veronica and their weird sidekicks live. (laughs) That's more accurate. Veronica Um, Lodgetown. (laughs) Oh, 
Betty and Veronica. Mm. Uh, yeah. So this is, I don't even know what year this is from. Do you? Okay. So I'm going to say what it feels like. It feels like 2015. This okay. is the kind of comic I feel like I would have read in 2015 because it was like before Trump, right? <laughs> like, I yes. feel like I would have read something this like uh, bouncy and optimistic and hopeful <laughs> only in before Trump was elected. Okay, you might be right. The volume came out in 2017. Mm-hmm. I can't believe how hard it is still to find information about comics. That's so strange to me. It's like, you don't just have, this is just going to be my rant that we're going to put in here. Half the time I'll go to like Marvel's website and I'll be like, okay, I'm going to look up who's on this creative team so that I can credit them because I care about crediting everyone, including the letterer. And yeah. it'll be like artist's name, writer's name, but not clear who's who, the end. Yeah, <laughs> like, seriously. <laughs> no, the publishers are like really bad about that because I mean, prioritizing, you know, like mm, the priorities are in a weird place. But like, I will say too that Mostly I end up using like wiki or something like that because the wiki fandom pages, they're usually a lot better about cataloging like who actually worked on the comics, oh, which is nice. Call. I should do that more. Well, yeah, I mean, but like it sucks that that's like what you're left to because there's definitely that issue where like you will look up at, you know, DC Comics or something and it's just like, oh, I guess like Scott Snyder did everything on this comic. <laughs> It's like, no, Scott <laughs> Snyder wrote the comic. There's a lot of other people that worked on it, too. But, um, yeah, I don't know. That's a recurring issue. I mean, I think a lot of indie publishers do that stuff, too, where it's just like oh, for not sure. everybody gets credited. Um, it's for the best if you just credit people, honestly. Genuinely. that's It all helps us out as want. researchers <laughs> trying to talk about your comics, just for starters. Yep. Yep. So that's our little rant about that. Um, I'm not sure what the years these are from. They, because if they got collected five issues in 2017, they probably are from 2016. Who knows? Maybe 2015. So if we'll you know, know, tweet me. Or it's actually, impossible call me, to know. Me. Yeah, there's, <laughs> comics refuses to tell us. There are no answers available, and nobody will ever be able to find out. So, I guess we're just gonna have to go with my guess, 2015. So and there, there you have it. Well, I will say, you know, Sarah was right. This is there is a bounciness to this. There's a a fervent love for the characters, and what I think is probably my favorite part of the comic is throughout, it feels like the authors, Marguerite Bennett and Cameron DiOrdio, you just feel like you're being winked at constantly. There are constant <laughs> references to how comics work. They're literally one of the sound effects that happens is comic science. Yeah. <laughs> and it just is full of just emphatic, really bouncy energy, as Sarah said. And it's just, I really, really enjoyed it. I was really surprised that I enjoyed it as much as I did. I think that, like many people, sometimes I underestimate or I've been conditioned to underestimate pieces about, like, young women being cute and fun. And I really, really loved it. Yeah, I've always loved Josie and the Pussycats. I grew up reading comics, and a lot of the comics that I had access to were Archie Comics. So I always remember reading about Josie and the Pussycats. Like, in my world, Josie and the Pussycats predate, like, Shakespeare, right? Like, I read <laughs> all of that, like, way earlier than I read anything else. But I 
love them. And I think that they are really interesting here. I like the fact that their personalities get to play out in a way that is interesting. We very seldom see that from them. So it is actually nice to see them be given this kind of extra room. Melanie especially, I think, shines here because she's allowed Mm -hmm. to have this kind of wisdom. And I think that the joke is usually that she's like not a smart person, right? Is like, mm-hmm. oh, she's just so pretty and not smart at all. You know, like that's like kind of what a lot of people have leaned on with her. So I think that for one, it's really nice to see, you know, the fact that she kind of defies like a lot of the stereotypes that people have put forward before, I think. And Valerie is very interesting because she works at a vet's office and is a vet and is cool and joins the Pussycats and is kind of like, struggling I guess to find her place but then that's why I ship her and <laughs> and Melanie because they have a lot of queer energy between them right like oh, that's like yeah. a thing that was I'm going to say probably intentional but was still kind of surprising because I was just like yeah totally this is like a you know Archie comic and then I'm just like oh my god this is like pretty queer though because like Josie's thing with Alexandra and like Oh, there's, yeah. There's a lot of ships going in all directions, I'll say. Yeah, and and I like that there's no, or there's very little explicit romance, too. You yeah. know, it gets to be really about these three friends and their sort of journey from obscurity into, like, super success and how that definition of super success keeps shifting over the comics. Like, it's really oh, yeah. endearing. I think also anyone who has a creative career and has seen the way that, like, things feel like your big break. And then you're like, oh my God, I have to get another big break. <laughs> like, yeah. I have to keep getting these big breaks. Like when when do I get the, the biggest break and just have to not do any more big breaks? Then I the coast. answer is never. <laughs> Here's what I'm going to do. Sell a book. It's going to sell a million copies. And then after that, I'm just going to take it easy. I'm just going to coast. And it's just like, well, that's never, that's literally never going to happen. Even if you're like, Stephen King, you still have to do things, right? Like, Mm -hmm. maybe you could stop, but, like, probably now he could stop. But, like, you know, for a long time, you have to, like, supply your lavish lifestyle and things, so. Yeah, your lavish need to eat meals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm doing out here. (laughs) My lavish (laughs) lifestyle. I'm trying to keep myself surrounded with rabbits and cats, and I need more money for it. You understand? You're like a dragon with like small pets and food. Uh, and like. gold. And gold, of course. Yes. <laughs> I don't want to forget that. The art is really, really nice in this. Like super expressive. You can see the way people feel. Even like side characters get these really nice treatments where you're like, oh, I really can understand how they're reacting to this moment or why they, you know, might be pissed off or excited or whatever. But I also like the way that the comic is aware of the absurdity of the base premise of the concept of the comic, which is that these, you know, musicians solve crimes. Like, I believe there's the panel where Valerie bursts into a room and screams, (laughs) we just solved an international crime! (laughs) And everyone's like, aren't you in a band? You're like in a band? (laughs) And then Josie runs off and, like, jumps on a a jet ski to chase down. (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, like the person that she's chasing. Ah, man, it's so it's so silly. It's hijinks, right? It's all hijinks. hijinks. And they're having, you know, and but then there's also these beautiful emotional undertones where, you know, Valerie is like, uh, Josie, I am not your sidekick. I'm a person. You can't just like run off when you're sick of dealing with life. And Josie's like, excuse me? I can't? She's like, oh my God. And Melody is like right there next to her. They're both like rubbing their temples, just like Josie. And Josie has to really learn how to be less self-centered. And I love that. I love that narrative for her. That's the big arc, you know? There are plot things that happen, but the emotional arc is... How do you be a better friend? How -hmm. do you be someone who isn't so concerned with your own success and so determined to make it that you alienate people? And that's what she's done in the past. And Valerie and Melody are like, do you really want to alienate us too? Like, we want to be doing this with you. And Josie's just like, damn it. I kind of suck, don't I? (laughs) And I think we've all had moments where we thought that. And maybe Alexandra has a little bit of a point, right? Like, oh, I love that. I love when the when the villain or the antagonist is right. And Alexandra's like so right, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's things that she does that aren't right. <laughs> no, I'm not saying the things she does are right. Her assessment of yeah, Josie yeah. is correct. Yeah. No, she's banana rama sometimes. <laughs> yeah. When she's she, like she shooting people reacts with t-shirts. Like a, yeah. And she's like, I'm here to ruin your life. And it's like, okay, that seems like a weird decision. (laughs) You have a big old crush on her. And yeah, I mean, that was it. Like the whole time, like there's kind of like a dude subplot there for a minute. And I'm just like, tell me more about Josie and Alexandra. Because I think that they have off the charts chemistry. Um, And I hope the best for them in the future. So this is absolutely a comic to check out if you're looking for something light in a sense, but fun, something that just oozes with love and enthusiasm for comics. The the people creating this comic love comics and they love Josie and they love Melody and they love Valerie and they love how absurd it all can be. And that to me, it just, it made it such a fun comic to read. It's so fun. I really enjoyed it. If you've been reading Archie for a long time and or you know, you read it as a kid or you like Riverdale or really any of those things, I think that you would enjoy this because, um, yeah, as you said, they come at it with a love of the comics. I think a love of the characters, you know, it just, it seems like uh, everybody had a blast. Mm, Too true. I love it. I love it. Okay, pick it up. It's Josie and the Pussycats, art by Audrey Mock, story by Marguerite Bennett and Cameron Dordio. Coloring by Andres Manovich, Kelly Fitzpatrick, and lettering by Jack Morelli. Definitely from 2015. <laughs> <laughs> we are a podcast that is all about making comic books more accessible to LGBTQ folks and women. So if you have a question about anything related to comics, comic adaptations, pop culture in general, conventions, cosplay, you name it, that's what we're here for. You can send us your questions at bitchesoncomics at gmail.com. Unfortunately, Gmail does not like the word bitch. They're pretty judgy about it. So (laughs) we can't have it spelled out. It is b.tchesoncomics at gmail.com. And do you remember there's no I'm bitch? 
If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor, and you can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S.E. underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.